many on Agnews Daily. And sequencing the genome means that we've taken little pieces of that DNA, so ATCG, that's maybe 100 or 1,000, or in this latest version, 10,000 pieces long, and we have to find how they overlap until we can read the entire sequence of the genome from one end to the other. October 10th, 2023, Tuesday, day after Columbus Day. Hopefully get some new headlines out there for our listeners today, Delaney. Well, I don't see that we're having too many new headlines. Tanner has a lot of outlets were closed yesterday for Columbus Day, but we're certainly getting some headlines here on the international scene. Yes, that'll be probably the focus of our conversation today. We also know that weather never takes a day off, whether it's a holiday or not. We still have very cold temperatures in store for Iowa and our friends up north. We've got freeze warnings in effect for Minnesota, North Dakota. They're looking at temperatures falling as low as 27 degrees. The warning goes as south, far south as southern Minnesota, parts of Nebraska and Illinois, and the entirety of Iowa will see lows in the mid-30s, which is what we're experiencing now. Southern Missouri, meanwhile, has a 40% chance of thunderstorms tonight and tomorrow, and a better chance is Thursday through Friday, as well as Iowa. It looks like the evening Wednesday kicks off a round of rain, not necessarily thunderstorms here in central Iowa, but that could extend itself into Thursday and Friday as well. Well, you're going to need a jacket then if you're out working, Tanner. I had to pull the kids' winter jackets out of the closet this morning. They looked at me like I was crazy, and I said, no, we're hats, gloves, everything today. That's not being a cool dad, Tanner. (laughs) That's right. But I also know that uh, I was that kid that only went to school in a long sleeve t-shirt and was freezing at recess. Mm, and you're probably wearing shorts too. No, no, I, I was a jeans kid. That was certainly my MO. Well, Tanner, switching tracks here into a little bit of a heavier news. We were continuing to get headlines out about the Israel-Hamas conflict. And we reported, of course, on the loss of human life yesterday. That's that's continuing to increase as far as the death toll, death toll goes. Uh, but the we're definitely seeing the Gaza Strip being the main area of attack here and uh, have seen hundreds of additional Jews killed. They are specifically, it sounds like, targeting Jewish citizens, Tanner, and are continuing to take hostages as well. But analysts are calling this the deadliest attack on Israel since Egypt and Syria mounted a coordinated attack over 50 years ago which resulted in Israel declaring war for the first time in hundreds of years, in 50 years. They are suggesting that we're going to see a very similar transition into potentially a war here, depending on how long this lasts. But there was the Abraham Accord that was going on, Tanner, which was an agreement between Saudi Arabia, the United States, Israel, and a few other countries in the Middle East. And the U.S., of course, was a backer of Israel. But it sounds like that accord is now permanently on hold or indefinitely on hold, I should say. But as far as some other impacts go, of course, we talked energy yesterday with Naomi. But the other market I did not realize that uh, definitely could be impacted here is the potash market. Tanner, Israel is the fourth largest exporter of potash, which I did not realize and was a little surprised to learn. But of course, as you think about where all of our 
potash and fertilizer supplies come from, we now have multiple countries in in war zones or war-like zones that are definitely going to continue to play out there. So Josh Linville with Stonex said, we haven't seen a direct impact on fertilizer prices yet, but that certainly is something that he's going to be watching moving forward. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the fallout is of this discord as far as that goes. Uh, I will continue to keep an eye on that. Obviously, Israel is pounding Gaza with deadly airstrikes, displacing displacing more than 100,000 people. Hospitals are being overwhelmed with injured and those that are battling for their lives. Israel's UN ambassador told CNN that they are not in favor, obviously, of what is happening and are looking to take drastic measures to push back immediately. This has now just been a couple of days since the initial attack. The number of hostages held in Gaza is estimated to be about 150. Uh, the Hamas claimed that they're holding 100 captives, including Israeli, Israeli army officers. We continue to get that death toll number rising. Uh, 900 have died in Israel, 750, 765 people confirmed dead in Gaza. Uh, as we continue to keep an eye on that. The Red Cross is calling for the release of all hostages from both sides, released unharmed. Obviously, that's a public statement that you would expect coming from the Red Cross. But we will continue to keep an eye on the devastating violence that's happening over there and what types of spillover effects it's going to have on agriculture. Absolutely, Tanner. There could be a lot of potential spillover effects. But I think I'm out of headlines related to that conflict. What about you? Yes, that's probably where I've got the extent of the news at this time. I'm sure we'll have more tomorrow. I believe we will as well. Uh, Tanner, over the weekend, late last week, we got a potential ban from lawmakers here in Congress to ban a carbon pipeline initiative moving forward. Minnesota represent. Representative Omar and a dozen other Democratic leaders of Congress are asking for a permitting ban on carbon capture pipelines. An official letter has been sent to President Biden saying that a moratorium is needed until federal safety standards are updated, as three carbon pipelines are currently being planned for the Midwest, and North Dakota has the potential to be one of the world's largest carbon capture sites. So senators and and uh, representatives from that area in particular, Tanner, have increasing concern and have made moves here with President Biden. He has not responded yet to what I can see in the headlines, but I'm sure that this will continue to be an issue that divides folks moving forward. Yeah, the interesting part, having a couple of discussions uh, with those close to pipelines are concerned that with all of the news and geopolitical actions that are taking place from searching for a new house speaker, as well as what we've got going on with foreign conflicts, they're afraid that this permitting bill would get attached to something else and stuck through. Um, so whether you are for or against, it's certainly one that we'll have to keep an eye on to see if it gets connected to any other larger, more pressing issue. Delaney, I wanted to find an update on our auto worker strike. And as I was diving into that, I 
discovered that more than 4,000 auto workers in Canada have also joined the strike against General Motors. Their Unifor union and the company failed to agree to terms similar to the ones that were agreed to by Ford. So we have now seen that that strike expands. The Canadian plants have strikes happening in Oshawa, Ontario, uh, as well as other cities. And these are factories that build the Silverado pickups. So they're continuing to keep an eye on those negotiations. Plants there on strike could affect the U.S. operations because its engines and transmissions are used in American vehicles are also assembled at these plants. We'll see if that spillover creates any effect here in the U.S. also. Well, Tanner, new restrictions have been put in place for ships going through the Panama Canal as the low water crisis continues down south. On September 29th, the Panama Canal Authority Vice Presidency for Operations, that's a mouthful, released an advisory to shipping stating that due to the ongoing water crisis currently experienced in the canal watershed, the Panama Canal Authority finds it necessary to implement additional changes to the transit reservation system rules based on the reduction in daily transit capacity. They said, therefore, effective November 1st, a new booking condition will be implemented based on the adjusted capacity now of just 31 vessels per day. And under this new condition, Tanner, named the booking condition five, a maximum of 30 slots will be offered daily. And then they also have restrictions as far as the breakdown of the size of ships that can come within that 30 bookings per day. This, of course, is a major shipping area for folks trying to cross the Atlantic and Pacific and connect through there. And the American Commercial Barge Line said that Due to the lack of rainwater, there is significant delay due to the transit through the Panama Canal. So a lot of shipping companies are urging folks that they work with to be patient as we're going to see and continue to see lots of shipping delays. And Panama Canal authorities expect the drought to persist into 2024, Tanner, and are likely going to see these new shipping regulations, these rules that they've put together, happen until at least 2024. Yeah, it doesn't sound like any of these low water problems are going to fix themselves overnight. Wanted to expand upon the headline I discussed yesterday about farmers using cover crops. The headline comes from the Purdue University Ag Economy Survey. Fewer of America's large scale corn and soybean producers are planting cover crops. According to their last results that came out at the end of the week, 52% of corn and soybean growers told the monthly ag economy barometer that they are five points below the year before in 2022, returning back to 2021 levels of those that are looking to adopt cover crops into their rotation for next year. Four of every 10 cover crop users are relatively new covers with five years or less with experience. The minority of cover crop growers, only 16%, say that they have cover crops on more than half of their land compared to 23% saying that they used it on a majority of their land last year. Corn and soybean acres accounted for 53% of the devoted cover crop planted acres this year, while other major row crop farmers such as wheat, 
cotton, rice, tobacco, peanuts, and sunflowers are much slower to adopt the use of cover crops. Biden administration launched their $3.1 billion Climate Smart Initiative to encourage farmers to adapt and adopt these practices to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But as this survey is telling us, Delaney, it may not be getting adopted as fast as the political parties are looking for it to be. Well, Tanner, after months, if not years of deliberation, we are finally entering into official trade talks with the UK. Those trade talks are preparing to commence here under the US-UK Trade Partnership Forum. Of course, these are going to take months, if not years, to go through, but the first chapters of discussion are expected to be completed by early next year. The TPF, as this trade agreement is now being acronymed, I'm not sure if that's a word, but I'm going to call it that, Tanner, uh, aims to address non-tariff trade barriers, economic standards, and various non-tariff issues. Unlike free trade agreements, TPFs do not include tariff reductions and do not require an official approval by Congress. So it's a little bit of a workaround here for negotiators to hopefully get something pulled together. Uh, the ag sector is historically a point of contention. And while these are easier to negotiate, agriculture issues are expected to persist. So hopefully we'll start to get more word out there about what kind of discussions they are having, Tanner, moving forward. Yeah, I think that's something that we'll continue to report on. I have one last headline for this morning, and it's just survey and production results as well as forecasting for the cattle herd. By 2025, beef production is forecasted to be down nearly 16% from 2022. It is difficult to rebuild a cattle herd quickly, but when you have a drought-forced herd liquidation, that makes it even more difficult. We're talking about low water levels in transportation avenues for exports. We're also seeing extreme drought in a lot of pasture and grazing land. This has pushed beef herds to be smaller than what they have been. January 1st, beef cow herd was at 28.9 million. That's the smallest it's been since 1962. And it is projected to continue to decrease in 2023 and 2024, all the way through 2025 to where it is expected to hit its lowest point. That's how long it will take for beef producers to build back up their herds. Domestic and international demand for U.S. beef will hopefully provide the encouragement to support the expansion to return. As you look at production over the last two to three years, as well as demand, we're looking at 2025 to be the turning point. So persistent drought is obviously going to be one of the mother nature's hurdles for us to overcome, as well as the prices as beef producers are seeing replacement heifers being the most expensive that they have been in a long time. As of early October, 40% of the U.S. was in some stage of drought. 23% was in D2 severe or D4 extreme. This includes significant regions where cattle is normally kept. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that, but it looks like it's going to be a multi-year process there as well, Delaney, for that cow herd to start getting rebuilt. Tanner, speaking of prices, what do you say we took a look, take a look at market prices here in the overnights? Let's do it. Well, Tanner, as we take a look at the overnights here, December corn is down a penny and three quarters cents. We'll open at 486 and a half. 
November soybeans down two and a half cents at 1261 and three quarters. Chicago December wheat this morning down nine and a half cents at 563 and a quarter. Hard red winter wheat in the December contract is down nine and a quarter cent, will open at 676 and three quarters. And December spring wheat down four pennies in the overnight to open this morning at 727. A quick reminder at where livestock will open here this morning. December live cattle down a dollar thirty-two and a half yesterday will open at a buck eighty-five thirty-five. November feeder cattle this morning will open at two forty-nine sixty-five after a sell-off day yesterday. And December lean hogs down a dollar ten yesterday to open this morning at seventy-two forty-seven and a half. Peter, I have a feeling that one of us, maybe both of us are going to geek out about this next conversation here. We're joined today by Dr. James Schnabel, the professor of a professor in the Department of Agronomy at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And we're going to be chatting about his corn genome project, but he's got a couple other big things up his sleeve, Tanner. I'm excited to dig into more today. James, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you for having me on. So James, before we get into some of the recent announcements here and some honors that you have to share with our listeners, let's dig into your background a little bit more. So you're obviously a professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, but how did you find yourself here? Um, So I'm actually a second generation uh, corn geneticist. I grew up in Ames, Iowa. My father uh, also studied corn at Iowa State University. Uh, I then had the, the odd path of studying corn by traveling to, to New York and California for my, my college and graduate training. Did a postdoc at the Danforth Center in St. Louis and was fortunate enough to be hired as an assistant professor at uh, University of Nebraska back in 2014. Awesome, and I am so glad you said that you have a tie to Ames, Iowa. I was getting ready to make a bunch of Iowa's corn better than Nebraska corn <laughs> jokes uh, yeah. throughout the entire interview. So that is fantastic. So as you've dove into your research, what's been the focus of your studies lately? So the the focus of my research uh, is understanding at a genetic level how corn perceives and responds to its environment. That's fascinating to me as geneticists just because it's a really cool problem, but it also matters a lot to farmers because that is how we can eventually learn to predict how corn hybrids will perform in environments in which they haven't been tested, which is a real limitation as we try and develop hybrids that have higher yield and can adapt to both changing climates and changing uh, economic concerns and agronomic practices. So James, as we dig into some of this research that you've been focused on uh, fairly recently, we've seen you know news in the headlines that you and your team at UNL have been able to sequence the entire corn genome, which is super exciting. And for our science listeners, I'm sure they understand exactly what that means. For, but for those of us that don't have a super strong science background or tenure, I'm thinking I should have paid more attention in high school science classes. Uh, walk us through what does that mean? What is sequencing a corn genome? What does that entail? It sounds like a lot. Yeah, so the the corn genome is about 2.3 billion base pairs long. So think of it like a novel with uh, 2.3 billion word, uh, uh, 2.3 million letters in it. Um, and sequencing the genome means that we've taken little pieces of that DNA, so ATCG, that's maybe a hundred or a thousand, or in this latest version, 10,000 pieces long, and we have to find how they overlap until we can read the entire sequence of the genome from one end to the other. Um, 
technically there are 10 different big pieces called chromosomes floating around. So reading from one end to the other end of each chromosome. So we can read all of the information inside of a corn plant that tells it how to be a corn plant and how to grow and uh, adapt to, to different environments. Wow, that is definitely going to be important now that we have, is it accurate to say we now have the complete map of the corn plant? Uh, we do, we do. We don't necessarily know how to read the map yet. There are lots of you know strange symbols on the map. We're not quite sure what they mean, but that's the research we can do now that we have, we don't have any missing holes left in our, our map of the corn genome. So as you think about, you know, how to take this map, as you called it, and turn it into something that we can read and implement for helping corn genetics and traits and hybrids improve, what's the process? Look, I assume it's a long process to be able to really read this map entirely, but what are your next steps going to be? So a, a lot of how we figure out what different things in the corn genome mean is we look for corn plants that have changes in their genome. So naturally occurring differences between one corn plant and another. Uh, you know, a lot of people who are uh, perhaps not as familiar with corn will drive by a series of cornfields and think, oh, all those plants look the same. But corn is actually a remarkably genetically diverse species. Uh, if you look at two different hybrids, there will be millions of differences uh, in the genomes of those plants. So we find differences in the map, and then we look at the properties of the plants that have those uh, different versions of those uh, parts of the map, how does the corn plant change? Does it grow taller? Does it flower earlier? Does it make a bigger or smaller ear or have different numbers of uh, 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 kernels, different compositions of protein or oil? And by looking at how the corn plants change, we can then figure out what that particular part of the map is specifying, what's its function in telling the corn plant how to grow. Yeah, that's going to have a huge impact as the studies continue to decipher that map. What do you think could be one of the largest impacts of having this completely mapped out for the future of corn? So I think the, the biggest and most powerful thing that this does is it allows us to really start making predictions about how corn plants will uh, respond to uh, environments they haven't been tested in previously. Uh, developing a new corn hybrid takes seven to 10 years. It's taken seven to 10 years for a very long time. Uh, even as we've gotten better at this, we really haven't sped up the process that much. And the only way that we're able to pick which hybrids to advance, which ones it makes sense to send on to farmer's fields is testing in the target environment. So I can't do tests here in Nebraska to figure out which varieties of corn are going to do well in central Iowa. And tests in central Iowa don't work really well to figure out which variety is going to work grow well around here around Lincoln. The problem we're facing is that the environment is changing. And the Nebraska of 2030 and the Iowa of 2030 are very different from the Nebraska and Iowa of today. So we don't have access to the environments that the corn hybrids we're developing today are going to have to grow and thrive in uh, when they're released to farmers. So I'm really excited our ability, about our ability to make better predictions about which hybrids to advance. Wow, this is really fascinating. And I feel like it's really culminated your career here into the recent announcement that you've been asked to join the Nebraska Corn Checkoff Board. Talk to us about what that role entails and what's in the future for you there. So let me clarify that a little bit. Um, what I've been, uh, what has happened is I've been named as the uh, Nebraska Corn Checkoff Presidential Chair which is actually a role at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. The Corn Board made a substantial 
uh, created a substantial endowment at the university because they want to make sure that the university continues to uh, do research on corn and corn genetics. Um, so the university selected me as the person to step into that role so that uh, I have access to these additional funds to support my work um, about you know, building models of for how corn will uh, perform in the future and developing new technologies to measure uh, corn performance. Well, that's exciting. I'm glad that you clarified that. What has that endowment allowed the University of Nebraska to do? Is that part of the funding for your research? Uh, it was not previously. This this announcement uh, happened uh, just last week. I think it was uh, official as of October 1st. So it's something that I'm, I'm looking forward to going forward. Uh, this previously has supported work at the University of Nebraska working on developing uh, uh, new end uses for corn. So uh, new ways to process corn to make uh, uh, high-value products, uh, more efficient uh, utilization of byproducts from ethanol fermentation, uh, things like that. That's exciting. So if our listeners want to follow along with what you and your fellow researchers are doing with this, what's the best way for them to stay connected? Um, I would say the probably the two best ways to see what we're doing um, are to uh, follow along either on uh, LinkedIn or what was formerly Twitter, I guess now X. Um, uh, for silly and obscure reasons, the Twitter handle is S-C-I-N-T-R-I and um, LinkedIn is, is obvious, I guess. Awesome. Well, James, thank you, thanks again for joining us today. Certainly appreciate your time. Uh, thank you again so much for having me on. Well, there you go, listeners. Hopefully you enjoyed that conversation. We appreciate you hanging out with us and keep tabs with us on social media. Of course, we want to know where the best corn is actually grown. Of course, we're impartial to the state of Iowa, but if you've got a different opinion, make sure you let us know, right, Delaney? Absolutely, Tanner. We'll probably take other people's opinions into consideration. <laughs> Absolutely. Listeners, but hang out with us the rest of the week. But for today, what do you say? Should we let them go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.